Blog Talk Radio. everyone and welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, a city gearing up for its 300th birthday, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, which is in a county named for a Polish count who's also known as the father of the American cavalry. Thank you for joining us for Episode 7, State of Arkansas versus Damian Wayne Eccles. Charles Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Lloyd Miss Kelly. Tonight, we're joined by Mr. Gary Meese, a former editor at the Memphis Commercial Appeal and the West Memphis Evening Times, and the author of Blood on Black and Where the Monsters Go, The Case Against the West Memphis Three, Volumes 1 and 2. This is a live show, and questions are always welcome, so please call us at 347-989-1171. Good evening, Mr. Meese and Michael. How are y'all doing tonight? Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, I believe you know more now about Arkansas than even I do, uh, but I'm excited <laughs> to be talking about this. It's a case that uh, hits pretty close to home, about an hour and a half, two hours away from me. Yeah, yeah. So we've got Mr. Meese. Um, how are you tonight? Uh- I'm great. Ready, ready to talk about the West Memphis Three case. <laughs> We've got the 25th anniversary of the the murders coming up on the fifth. On and, Saturday, uh, yeah. Yes, and yeah. Uh, there's been some good news uh, uh, for the kids at Weaver Elementary, where uh, Michael Moore, uh, Stevie Branch and uh, Christopher Byers were in the second grade when they were killed. Yeah. And that there's there's been an internet internet Facebook drive to get some. Uh, there's a reading grove there that's a memorial. But uh, in in past years there, there's been a drive for maintenance of the the reading grove, which is on the playground at the school. Uh, this year. The drive was for uh, books and other items for the children there, which would be oh, that's much, great, which are, which are much needed and appreciated. And <clears> the <throat> first round of uh, first round of the drive, all the books were bought up in no time at all. And uh, I haven't checked in the last 
few hours, but uh, uh, the lady who was doing this, uh, Cherie Van Zyl, I think is how she pronounces her name, she was the one who really organized this, and she uh, she had new items put up, and most of that had been bought already. So that was wonderful. Very, yeah, and it's a great thing that this, yeah, obviously the more books that the kids have access to, they're the better for everybody. And it's a very and she's going to put um, little stickers in the books to uh, marking this as memorials for uh, Michael. Uh, Stevie and Chris, and of course, you know, no matter where you stand on this case, and people stand pretty far apart and, and usually do, uh, but uh, I think everybody should be able to agree that the children uh, were absolutely innocent victims in all this, and should be these boys should be remembered in the best possible way. And I have a hard time seeing why anybody would have an objection to getting. You know, books for right. second grade. <laughs> it sounds like it sounds like a no-brainer to me, but you know, I, I, think, I totally and I think agree. It, and I think it's been very successful in that way. So that's really good news for those kids. Um, yeah, I, I know there's going to be some other memorial uh, activities uh, at the school, and uh, on Saturday, I. I'm assuming they've checked with the principal about this, but I think they're going to put up some ribbons and maybe something's going to happen at the reading group. And it's a very appropriate memorial there for them. I mean, they played there a lot and they were out playing when they were killed too. And, you know, they were, they were, these were three very typical eight year old boys who think about it would now be 33 years old. Yeah, we were just out one afternoon and ended up dead in the most horrible ways imaginable. Yeah. So, uh, and that's one of the things that's driven this case from the beginning is the sheer horror of the crime, which I'm, I find it uncomfortable to look at some of the photos or talk about some of the wounds. After looking at it over and over and over again, I don't get <laughs> grown enough calluses there to just look at that and not think how horrible it is. Right. And I don't think anybody could. I absolutely, agree. Absolutely. I, One thing, Lisa, before we go backwards and go back to 1993 and forward with the case, I do want to uh, kind of update people on this because, you know, some people don't follow it as closely as Arkansans or people closely associated with the case that have followed it from the beginning as of right now after 2012 i believe or 2011 excuse me when the west memphis three the uh accused were released it's pretty much still a done deal correct correct as far as they're not looking for anybody else who could have potentially done it they're not actively seeking out leads or anything correct no, and and at this point, I think uh, you remember my explanation of the Alfred plea uh, mm-hmm. because it right. maintained the convictions. Um, the duty is on Eccles, Baldwin, and or Miss Kelly to bring mm-hmm. forth evidence right. and to right. file court proceedings or do anything. It's not up to the state, and that's one of the things that 
really aggravates me and annoys me is that they're they're criticizing the state for not doing what the defense bears the burden of doing. Right. Due right. to the uh, due to the posture of the case at the time. Mm-hmm. Now, right. had they won new trials, gone to trial, and been acquitted, then, yeah, the state would be under a burden to investigate the case and try and solve it. But that's not how it happened. Right. Um, and, right. and as I, I mentioned in the pre-show chat, uh, I watched Paradise Lost 3, and mm-hmm. my blood pressure was through the roof when they were at the end talking about this idea, this plea as though the state of Arkansas had twisted their arms and made them do it. Right. Right. And right. That, that is not at all in any way, shape, or form how it happened. And to me, the, the stage in the proceedings at which it did happen tells me that the attorneys did not feel as strongly about the evidence that they had Otherwise, they would have gone to those hearings. You're talking about, the and of and course, can, the spin they put. Of course, the spin they put on it. They wanted to get Damien off the death row before the state executed him. Right, correct. But he was not. He was not near the new trial. If they'd been denied new trials by Judge Laser, that would have gone up on appeal. That takes at least two years. Right. The then, they would have been eligible to move on to federal court. One of the more and that takes about six. Least was was that Damien was making this claim that he was dying in prison from unspecified whatever. Correct. And and with Jason Jason Baldwin acting like he's this wonderful noble gentleman and you know selflessly giving up his chance to exonerate himself for the life of his friend. You know, agreed to to take the Alfred plea, which is, I mean, that's his spin right. on it, but that's how it was. Is <laughs> because poor Damien was dying in prison. Well, Damien gets out, and the next thing you know, he's partying down with his rock star buddies, and all night at really the Madison. Healthy. Yeah, he doesn't look healthy, but he doesn't look like he's dying either. <laughs> he was. He wasn't. He wasn't flown by helicopter to the med. <laughs> and admitted into ICU to treat him for all kinds of terminal illnesses. No, which not they at don't all. name what. And, and I mean, he's he was blind, and he lost his hearing, and he forgot how to use a fork because uh, he had to use a fork and, and, and you know it's uh, the, the, all that and you know and he still got unless he's got false teeth now. He looks like he's still got a pretty complete set of teeth and uh, otherwise looks like he's bicycling all around Harlem now, all around yeah. Harlem, really. So yeah. he's, not, he's not, hasn't been, except when it serves his purposes. Correct. Just like he's not crazy unless it serves his purposes. He does seem right. to be able to turn it off and on. And now he's become yeah. an expert on the death penalty and uh 
he hates the state of Arkansas and never wants to come back here, but he'll sure come back here whenever it benefits him to get his face on camera and remind everybody who he is and things like that. Right, and keep it, and they they want to keep the propaganda going. Right, they don't want to do the hard work though, Lisa, of actually proving, providing some sort of exonerating uh, information that would, which doesn't exist in my opinion, but. You know, if it's there, then by all means, go get it and show it to somebody. But, it, you know, they don't want to do the hard work of coming up with that. Instead, they want to do what's been done in this case for quite a while now, which is let's make as much noise, easy noise as we possibly can on social media and in protest. And maybe right. we'll find a politician who's weak enough to listen to what we're saying and go ahead and pardon us just because it seems like the easy thing to do. Right, which, which they by, which is, they found which that in Scott Ellington. Ellington, yes. Scott Ellington was weak enough and foolish enough and new enough in the case that he just simply said, okay, you know, I'll get rid of this case by letting these, these uh, three guys out of prison. I don't really know that much about the case, and I really don't want to be bothered about it. And right. I guess he's been more bothered than he's realized since, but he didn't know that at the time. I don't. I don't think he really understood the case that well. No, no, oh no, he had no. I don't think he'd even looked at anything uh, beyond maybe looking at whatever Kent Holt and uh, David Ralph were filing in opposition to all this crazy bullshit that the defense right. was coming up with. Um, but he didn't know, and you know, Laser really didn't know. Laser had not had the benefit of any of this so-called evidence. He had the conclusory allegations of the defense, and he had some opposition and response from the state, but he had not seen a single witness testify. He had not heard a single bit of uh, about the DNA evidence, and something you may be aware of that I'm not – but was there full disclosure of their DNA results to Scott Ellington as they were receiving them? Have you ever Not asked a, that question? I didn't. No, I, I didn't okay. ask. And good question. And Ellington at this point, I don't know what his answer would be if it was posed to him. But no, I've never, I didn't think about that at the time. <laughs> but, you know, in retrospect, uh, I, like, like, as with the investigators in, into the case, I wish I'd asked that question then. <laughs> right, right. I I work for a civil uh, plaintiff's attorney, and I've worked for defense attorneys in civil law. And that's one of the things, when you're getting ready for a trial, you have to disclose your evidence to the other mm-hmm. side. And when they filed the... Uh, federal writ in 2007 with the, quote, hair evidence, I noticed that the testing reports were dated in 2005, but they hadn't been filed into the court record at that time. They weren't filed until 2007 when he filed the federal writ. Right. And that was in direct violation of Judge Burnett's order on DNA testing. So uh, that's what makes me think that they didn't provide everything to Scott Ellington because 
they came up with this plea deal in between two status reports on DNA testing. Right. And had it done before the next status report was due in August. Right. Right before. And the, the, they, the release was in August, but before that date. August 2011. Yeah. Right, seven years right. Ago. Correct. It was August 19th was the date of the Alfred plea. The status report was, I think, like August, due around August 20th of 2011. Right. So, uh, and so once the Alfred pleas were worked out, they just said, oh, well, you know, the parties have resolved everything. We're done. Right, which resulted in this whole seeming rush to judgment where nobody knew anything about this until the the day they were seemingly knew anything about this until the day they were released and seemingly called almost by surprise. I uh, I spoke to some people that are um, are close to the Moors and. Uh, basically, the Moors were brought in. I think to Mike Allen's office at the Critton down. Crittenden County Sheriff's Office, mm-hmm. and so it was a done deal the, the, the night before, and so, so this is what we've done, that it's over, it's done, they got no no input, he didn't, Ellington didn't even go to them and say, look, this is what the defense has proposed, this is why I think that we should do it. What are your thoughts? And let them at least have a semblance of input into this major decision. Um, so you're talking about Ellington did not attempt to approach Todd and Dana Moore about letting out the killers of their son. He didn't even bother making a phone call. No. They were they were told once it was done the day before it was gonna be it was before that hearing. Yes. On the 19th of August. Wow. Um, which, you know, I just think is horrible. Um, of course, you know, Pam and Byers are going to be happy about it, but he could have at least gone to the Moors. They approached him in July. So he had time to go to the Moors and say, look, this is what they're proposing. And I think we should do it. Um, Steve, Steve and Branch it, was it, very upset about all this, and, and very yeah, Steve, to, right, Steve Senior. But you know, the, Steve Senior was had, marginalized okay. because he and Pam had been divorced. Understood, but he did have an interest in the case, and yes, he did. He did, and he loved fun, and he was he was, you know, he had was basically marched out of the courtroom. Correct. The courtroom, you know, on two different occasions for voicing his opinion, and mm-hmm. uh, which isn't really the way to act in court, but it's somewhat understandable, I think. But uh, uh, and I'm sure Terry Hobbs was not in favor of this. I mean, I know he wasn't. So, no, you no. know, most of the parents were not in favor of this decision. And if Melissa Byers was still alive, it would be interesting to know what her opinion would be. But she Correct. certainly died 
her son's killers were in prison, and she may not have been happy about anything else with the case, but she's at least happy about that. Right, right. But, uh, yeah, and and the other thing that I've, I've said before, if only Judge Burnett had just held the freaking hearings on the DNA testing in 2008. If he had done that, he would not have been reversed on the merits by the Arkansas State Supreme Court based on the inconclusive DNA evidence. And then the convictions, there would have been no Alford plea because he would have denied the motions for new trial on the merits and the Arkansas Supreme Court would have reaffirmed it. Or affirmed it, rather. And then they would have moved on to federal court. So, I mean, I can see Scott Ellington didn't want to deal with the years and years and years of endless post-conviction litigation. Oh, but it wasn't on his shoulders. That was on the attorney general. And maybe Dustin McDaniel didn't want to deal with it anymore. I don't know. I get that impression since Dustin McDaniel rubber stamped it. Dustin McDaniel did a a little bit of Arkansas triangulation there and, you know, said, you know, he was adamant about their, about their guilt. And, you know, at the same time, he turned around and worked out this deal to let them out on an Alfred plea. I mean, he, right. He did the initial, um, I think I, I could be getting the attorneys mixed up, but I think Patrick Braga, Braga and, and Daniel were, Binka, yeah, I'm getting Benka. all the different. Binka, not not Braga. Braga, somebody else. They, they Stephen have, Braga. They have, he's a yeah. He's Stephen yeah. Braga, I believe. His first name's Stephen. Okay. Anyway, I'm getting the attorneys mixed up. But they, uh, McDaniel and this other attorney that he'd been in law school, been a classmate right. in law school, which is understandable. They all know each other on that level. They they had uh, a, a habit of meeting for lunch every year, and uh, that particular year they met for lunch and talked about uh, figuring out a deal to move forward, way to move forward with the West Memphis Three case. And they came, the Alfred plea got floated to McDaniel, who floated it over to Ellington, who was new in office, had political mm-hmm. ambitions, uh, really was facing a lot of trouble, expense. And headaches uh, you know, with with dealing with it, and you know I'm a little harsh on him sometimes just because he he has not he's not seen fit to try to enforce the the conditions of release in particular, which is galling to me that you, these conditions are set up for these killers right. to let out on their own guilty plea, and then they're not even they're not even required to hold down a job, which. That's just one of the conditions. They should have been. They they should have also all three been required to stay in Arkansas. Right. Instead, uh, for ten years. Yeah, Eccles is just jetting off to New Zealand before you knew it to hang out with Peter Jackson. Right. Right. Who, by the way, um, uh, worked his own political magic down there and got New Zealand to. Forego their usual restrictions on allowing felons to enter the uh, the country because he wanted to hang out with his pal Damien and Lori Lori Davis. And I remember so that pulled strings to get all that done and created quite a scandal down there. But 
he's the most famous person from New Zealand and probably one of the rich, certainly one of the richest. So who's going to fight him down there effectively? No one. Right, right. But I I had also heard, and you can maybe confirm it or or not, but uh, I had also heard that Peter Jackson is the one who put his oomph behind Scott Ellington to get him elected thinking that Scott Ellington would open the prison doors and turn the three free. And then it turned out once Scott Ellington was elected, he was like, oh, no, can't do that. (laughs) So um, that would be funny if that's what happened. But I've heard Ellington was never a trial attorney. No, I don't think so. Uh, Yeah, I don't think he's ever tried a case. I think he's well regarded attorney in Jonesboro, but not as a some sort of criminal trial attorney at all. No. Right, but, right. And that to be a prosecutor, you even to be the elected DA, where you don't necessarily, you're not necessarily in the trenches trying the cases. You still have to have that an ability to strategize and to an extent spin that Ellington just does not have. No. I mean, the no. things that he said in connection with the Alfred plea, it's like, you idiot. They're spinning it like you're putting your tail between your legs. You need to spin it, but they're all putting their tails between your legs. I know. Because they don't think to, they're going to prevail at the new trial hearings. And he comes across the documentaries, and they should be thanking him for doing what he did. And he, uh, Correct. The doc- and they're criticizing they him in the state of Arkansas, yeah. You know, they make him look like a fool. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, not just what he says, but how they lit it and et cetera, et cetera. You know, there are a lot of right. technical Like I said, that's why my blood pressure was through the roof. And I was wishing I'd had a drink. Understood. <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, wow. now we had a caller uh, call in before the show started, uh, and he's been patiently listening. Uh, Mike, are you still there? Maybe you got. Uh, yes, ma'am. About- Hi. <laughs> oh, yes, ma'am. I'm here. <laughs> now, do you have any questions Hello. for for Mr. Meath or? Uh, Anything you, you want to add? I guess regarding some of the uh, DNA evidence you guys were talking about earlier. Yes. Is it, uh, I mean, is that still usable by any any sense of the means as far as, say, an upcoming additional charge maybe that was never on the no. table? No. Should any and new evidence arise? What, what I suspect in this is that the defense received some D, some kind some DNA evidence from somewhere that did not exclude one, two, or all three. And that was when they realized they had to do the Alfred Police. Because had they produced the necklace we got maybe Well no they they the never evidence? tested the necklace or Miss Kelly's T shirt. They never sought testing. Of either of those two items. Unbelievable. 
So they they never wanted to answer the question of whether the blood on the T-shirt belonged to Michael Moore or just Miss Kelly or whether the blood on the necklace belonged to Steve Branch or Jason Baldwin. They were testing other things, hairs and uh, swabs and uh, I think ligature, uh, tissue from ligatures and things like that. Right. So um, now I recall earlier and earlier testing back when they were originally doing this, the, 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 the ligature, the material in the ligatures was mostly too degraded to really get anything meaningful. Uh, Right. There was a a drop of blood from uh, that was probably, I mean, it was Eccles necklace and there was a drop of blood that matched that you couldn't rule out Eccles. Then there was right. a, a drop where you couldn't rule out, based on blood typing and so forth, a Baldwin and a Stevie Branch, right? Right. And 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 they the idea is that, that that's been dissipated and there's no way to retest. But you've said, Lisa, if I'm not mistaken, that it seems like it's pot. And this, I think the same. Uh, and then the the testing on the T-shirt was very. Primitive at the time was originally tested. This is Miskell's right. T-shirt, and it could be either based on the blood typing, uh, you know, the more technical term than I do. But it's a, it's a DNA test, but it, it could be uh, it could be Michael Moore or it could be Miskell. You can't rule out right. one of them. Right. But sophisticated testing could possibly show that indeed it's it's the um, uh, t- uh, Testing that would pinpoint that you could exclude uh, Michael, uh, exclude Miss Kelly from that, perhaps right. from the correct shirt, and, and and it matches Michael Moore to the exclusion right. of all other likely sources, and the same thing with the uh, the blood spot on the pendant. Right. So those because are those should, should be two vital vital clues, and it would answer a lot of questions that still surround the case. Right. But the modern methods, even though and the, at the time of the original investigation, material had been consumed, we see every day all the time in modern DNA methods what was thought to be consumed if there's a speck left somewhere it can be amplified and then it can be tested. And it would be better, I think, for them as well, for them to attempt to test and eliminate the victims Yes. than to not even bother testing because if, if they did attempt to test and there was no material or no DNA recovered, at least they would have tried but these are two items that were never on their list of things to test. Or I think the Miss Kelly T-shirt was referred to, but it was never on the list of things that they wanted tested. And the necklace certainly wasn't. Is this material still in evidence in West Memphis? or That it likely is still in evidence in West Memphis, but the The problem that you have is that the state has no duty to expend the resources 
or the time or the money to test evidence. That's a GoFundMe and, if I ever heard one. That, I mean, <laughs> I'm sure it's public. Well, yeah, but we, we would... as private individuals, we have no interest. I know what it doesn't sound parents? fair, but pardon? What about the parents? You know, I I don't think they really do either because John Mark Byers and Pam Hicks already tried that. Yeah. And their their suit for access to evidence was dismissed. Yes, Pam. uh, Pam It it doesn't it doesn't seem fair or equitable, but that is because the state steps into the shoes of the of the citizens and handles criminal prosecutions. So, um, but it's one of those things that it's a question that they could have answered and they chose not to. What does that say about their position? Because if it was me, I'd want those things would be the things I wanted tested. And I would, I would forego testing of anything else. I forego testing of hairs because they might belong to the victims they're not conclusive means of identifying anybody or anything. So test things that you can get nuclear DNA from, not test hairs that all you're going to get is mitochondrial DNA, which is no more exclusive than fiber comparison, microscopic comparison of fibers mm. or hairs. But in other words, it, you, you, you can't ex- uh, you have all these people that can't be ex- excluded, but uh, it's going to number. In most cases, it's going to be numbering in the millions of people that could be in- included. Uh, well, it, yeah, it's it's kind of I, I'm math and I math and science and I have never been close. Um, but in the like the mitochondrial DNA. I have my sisters and I all have the same mitochondrial DNA. Our mother has it. My both both my uncles have it. My nephew has it. Uh, every one of my grandmother's siblings has it. And her mother, and so mitochondrial DNA passes unchanged through unchanged through the female line. So the hair on the shoelace could be Terry. It could could have been his sister. It could have been his brother. It could have been his mother. Or any any one of one point seven percent of the population, which is correct. A lot. Correct. Which are and that, that is, is I think the world the world population is five billion. Yes. So one point seven percent is millions of people. I have the understanding that it was Hobbs's hair that was supposedly found in the... No, the, the, basically, oh, and, right. and in reality, on those two evidence hairs, the mitochondrial DNA profiles between the hair and Terry's mitochondrial DNA profile were not an exact match. So if someone explained it to me, it actually is 
the the universe of potential donors is the people with the exact mitochondrial DNA profile as that contained in that hair, as well as people with Hobbes's mitochondrial DNA profile. There was apparently one difference, uh, a difference at one of the nucleotides. So really, the DNA between the evidence hair and Hobbes is not a match because the profiles are different at one nu- nucleotide. And even if and, it was, and even if it was, you could not absolutely prove it came from him exclusively, correct. to the exclusion of everybody else in the world. Exactly, mitochondrial DNA was, is not. Pardon? Even if you could prove it, it's not unlikely that living in the same home with somebody right. that he doesn't come home from work, take his jacket off, he's a middle-aged man losing hair. I find shoe uh, hairs in my shoelaces all the time from my girlfriend, my daughter. Mm-hmm. That's a very common thing. I mean, that's that's hardly the nail in the coffin evidence for guilt yeah. by any means. Right. It, and Michael Moore had been over at the uh, at the Hobbs house just that afternoon, so it's not it's not as if his shoelace couldn't have picked up uh, right. hair uh, just from that, among many other possibilities. But one of the one of the problems, and and this provides sort of an example, is people who want to believe that the hair belongs to Hobbes, they actually represent that the hair came to be in the lace while he was tying it, and right. some of them will even represent that as being a proven fact when any DNA expert will say, I can't say when that DNA got there. It could have been a day, it could have been a week, it could have been a month, or it could have been at the time of the crime. But there's no time clock that says it was deposited on such and such a date. So that's, you know, that, and that's what helps Eccles get away with presenting that hair as Hobbes hair, even though the reality is it's a hair that doesn't exclude Hobbes, which is no different than the fiber evidence that was allegedly so faulty and flawed that it never should have even been admitted into right. court, according to Eccles and his advocates. Right. The, the, the fibers from the green, I think it was a green T-shirt, Dare Animal green, T-shirt. Green, yeah. Correct. Uh, and, and, the, Eccles, and the red rayon fiber. And the red rayon fiber from... Uh, Gail Grinnell, Baldwin's mother. Um, right. You know, from her bathrobe or nightgown, correct? Correct. Bathrobe yeah. or nightgown, something like that. It was a bathrobe, correct. I'm pretty sure. See, that's another, that's another telling thing because Miss Kelly said that there was a bathrobe involved, but when in reality that fiber came from a nightgown. So the fact that you well, wouldn't know the difference as, between the two. No, and. As I recall, that statement from Miss Kelly came after he'd been convicted to a guy in prison. I think his name was Michael Johnson. And That's right. I've really never put much stock in anything Michael Johnson said, Miss Kelly said. Um, I don't think there was a bathrobe involved. I think Michael Johnson was just trying to see what he could get to uh, alleviate himself of his own criminal charges. 
by giving well, the prosecutor a statement about Miss Kelly? You know, it, it sounded to me more as if Michael Johnson heard something about a, a bathrobe and maybe Miss Kelly was relating the facts of the case as he understood them in, a, in almost certainly a very imperfect sort of way. And right. so this Correct. This thing, information gets uh, distorted as it gets transmitted. And, right. Uh, in, in some respects, it makes it, to me it sounds more like that he actually did talk to Miss Kelly because – Suddenly, there's a bathrobe, or I, I think Johnson said it was a nightgown. Did he say it was a nightgown? I think he did. And, yeah. And yeah, that's what I was saying. That was the difference. It wasn't that first that you know they're both night clothes worn by women that he could, uh, you know, he could just simply have con- conflated them or confused them and and passing passing this along to uh, the prosecutors. Correct. Uh, that and that is, I I agree. I think that's. That's the more likely scenario. Um, and, and Ms. Kelly may not have even really been confessing. He may have just been complaining about his trial because I remember Dan Stidham uh, was very upset that they were going to be able to use those fibers against Ms. Kelly to corroborate his confession, even though neither of the fibers uh, were from garments in Ms. Kelly's household. Right. right. So that may have been something that Miss Kelly was relaying to Michael Johnson, and Michael Johnson just, as you said, conflated it. Because there is a lot of conflation that goes on when it comes to the West Memphis Three. <laughs> yes. Uh, the, uh, speaking of the hair evidence, the J- Jacoby hair is another is just like a more egregious example of the same thing. It, it, Correct. There's no no proof that it's. It, it, it's probably not even his hair. There's no proof that it's even linked to him in any kind of any way. He just can't be. He just can't be excluded from the vast field of people that it could belong to. So, right. I, I and, and that one, that was a hair that wasn't uh, co- collected until the night of the arrest. Yeah. We when um, when uh, Lisa. I can't help you there. Went to West Memphis. Yes. Um, I, I never. I, I I used to call her Sackavicious because that's what it, the spelling looks like to me. <laughs> I was trying to figure that out myself. Which which is an which is what example of what happens when uh, you wait to try uh, to, to you start talking about retrying a case seventeen or eighteen years later? You get Correct. witnesses. Their memories. Almost everybody's memory is going to be worse after seventeen, eighteen years, and some are going to disappear. High. They're going to flake on you, and uh, there was already a lot of flaking going on on witnesses. Uh, potential prosecution witnesses in the case all the way back in 93 and 94. Correct. That's because the late great Ron Lax was engaging in some serious witness tampering. Yes. And he gets, because he was going to them and telling them you could be charged with perjury if you testify. Right. And he did it. He did it in a very soft, uh, soft style of intimidation where he seemed Mm -hmm. to be their friend. But you go to somebody like Buddy Lucas and say, you know, if you don't keep your mouth shut, 
I'm just saying this to you as a friend, but you know, you could end up in prison with your friend Jesse Miskelly. And right. what does Buddy Lucas do? He's going to say, right. Talking Ken Watkins did uh, the same thing, and uh, William William Jones was was scared off the case too. And that, you know, and I don't Correct. know that you know Buddy Lucas to me is, has a very compelling story, and it matches up so closely with Miss Kelly's confessions that uh, that you know they didn't collaborate on the stories, and they they match up about uh, about giving the giving of the shoes and the, mm-hmm. and you know, and the t- the timing is off in some of Miss Kelly's stories, but basically it's the same story, the same shoes, and it's repeated over and over again. So you know, it, the more times it's repeated, the stronger chances are that there's some truth to it, and just particularly Correct. different people who are not collaborating with each other at that point. Correct. So, and I, I think I've always gotten the sense that Buddy Lucas. He he knew what had happened was wrong, and he wanted to tell the truth. But I think he he did in some ways still want to try and protect Miss Kelly, who was his friend, because I think he ended up giving the police shoes that didn't have blood on them, and that probably weren't the shoes he had gotten from Miss Kelly. He gave he gave them two different pairs of shoes, and they had to give him some boots in return, or he wouldn't give them. Right, right. So, um, and, uh, you know, I I wouldn't be surprised if he took the Adidas shoes that Miss Kelly actually gave him and tossed those in the lake. Well, by the way, you know, uh, we we already alluded to this uh, evidentiary, the the evidentiary hearing from 2013 with Pam Pam Hicks Hobbs and uh, Hobbs Hicks. And John, Mark Byers wanted to get access to the evidence. They used that. That became a, a platform for them presenting this alternative suspect scenario that now includes then included Terry Hobbs, who was already vilified by so many people in so many different ways on very thin evidence. David Jacoby, again, on very thin evidence, and they managed to scare the whiskers off, almost scare the whiskers off off Jacoby, which would be a real job. And then mm-hmm. they, they, throw, they throw in L.G. Hollingsworth, Jr., who's dead, and then they throw in the most skid, one of the most skittish characters in the whole scenario, which is Buddy Lucas, who, you know, was spending a good bit of the summer of 1993 sleeping under bridges because he didn't want to talk to the police or anybody else about the case. Right, and, right. And he was. I'm sure he still was still scared in 2013. So that you know, he wasn't going to come out into the press and say, you know, this is foolishness. This is not. I didn't have anything to do with this. Right. And, uh, and who else? And Jacoby did, but you know, he'd already been uh, smeared by association from his friendship with Terry Hobbs. Mm-hmm. They weren't even exactly. They, they weren't even really, really close friends, but they loved playing guitar together and they did hang out together. It's not as if they were childhood buddies or anything like that. And that's about all it really amounted to. They were friends, right? You know, but they weren't friends and in 2013. Because I'm, I'm you know, not it, sure. I, I think I spoke with Mr. Jacoby uh, pretty much at length, and the impression that I got from him was that. 
if he had known in 1993 that Terry, or he had suspected in 1993 that Terry had anything to do with this, he would have gone to the police and told them what he knew. Absolutely. And so to think that he would sit back and, I mean, we never heard Jacoby's name at all because Terry Hobbs was never on anybody's radar until 2007 or 2005. No. He wasn't mentioned. He was barely mentioned in um, Marl Everett's book, Devil's Not. Correct. I'm sure sure his name's in there a few times just because – she named the parents, but there's certainly instead of she dwelt for a great length on uh, Mark Byers' uh, NF drug dealing and his domestic troubles and so forth. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. she spent more time on that than she spent on uh, 500 pages of Davian Eccles' mental health history. Uh, quite a bit more. But uh, don't you know, Gary, that that mental health history was compiled by Baldwin's attorneys to make Eccles look guilty? Didn't you know that? I heard somebody Or it was compiled by Jerry Driver to make Eccles look guilty. Yeah, you know, Jerry Jerry is quite the counterfeiter on those medical records. Oh, Um, yeah. (laughs) Little known talent. I hope the listeners know you're joking on all this, uh, but you know Eccles. Eccles has the, who is a bald face liar, has been proven to be. He lied on the stand repeatedly, which really, mm-hmm. really hurt hurt him with the jurors, because they said this guy's a liar. I mean, why should they believe anything he says? And why? then he, uh, and, and then he he uh, claims that Baldwin's attorneys came up with this, a woman who perjured herself and throwed it all together. And none of that's true. It's his, his defense team put it together. They were going to they, uh, uh, you know, you know, Eccles had Ron Lax running around doing things for him. Baldwin's attorneys really didn't want to have a whole lot to do with the Eccles' defense. They really didn't want to be tried with Eccles, understandably. And right. and uh, and you know, if something came their way, I guess they took it, but they weren't looking for a lot and they certainly weren't collaborating on things like his mental health records with, with Ron no. Lax or anybody else. And it was a Lax employee who put the uh, the, the files together for the benefit yeah. of uh James Moneypenny to to testify on, who was a psychiatrist chief. And uh yeah. and then the defense uh waived any objection to have it all entered into the record when the prosecution asked them to do that. It was un- one of the many unforced errors in that in that uh, defense uh, that benefited the prosecution greatly as far as the penalty phase. But, keep, but I know you know this, but keep, readers, listeners need to keep in mind that the jury had little to no idea of what Damien Eccles' mental health history was other than some illusions and Testimony, but as far as an actual record of some sort, it wasn't right. really there till penalty phase when 500 plus pages of documents showed up from three different mental uh, three different stays at mental hospitals within the last year, and right. numerous trips to social work, the local mental health center for not numerous but enough, you know, and files from where he applied for disability for uh, for mental illness. Listing himself as homicidal, suicidal, alcoholic, mm-hmm. 
drug-addicted, manic-depressive, schizophrenic, and sociopathic. Right, that, exactly. That's never quite everything, but it comes pretty pretty darn close. Right. And, uh, he's, and he can, there's no way he could even possibly be all these things, but he claimed it, and he got his uh, disability double-quick just because they said, oh, this kid's built a really good case. He's crazy, and he really can't support himself. Right. And 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 the, the the sad thing is, he didn't want to. I mean, he's supposed to be so smart, but he's got absolutely no drive. Even now, he has got no drive to do anything other than play the victim. And I think even if he hadn't been charged and convicted of capital murder, he would have found some way in his life to play the victim. I, I I tend to think that he actually is highly driven, but he's driven by such a strange thing that it is hard for almost anybody else to really understand, which is that he conceived this goal of being the world's greatest and most powerful magician when he was a kid and he and you know, everything he did, everything he believed, it all Seemed to, it all went to this one purpose, and it's about having control and power over over people, and this is the means by which he's going to do it. Because otherwise, it's just a, it's a lot of hard work. But you know, instead, mm-hmm. I'll call I'll call up some angels to get me out of prison, which is what he claimed happened, and uh, uh, you know, and and he he had this very strange psychology. He had a very strange upbringing with. Parents who were highly dysfunctional. Uh, uh, mother, the mother and father were back, and they were pair, uh, they were all over the place as far as where they lived, mm-hmm. who they were living right. with, living circumstances, and um, very unstable atmosphere. Um, Eccles was a strange kid by all standards, and uh, he grew up to be a strange teenager, and now he's a strange adult. But he, mm-hmm. he he conceived a fascination with the Salem Witch Trials, which, by the way, didn't involve binding people, torturing no. them, putting them into water, uh, doing all these degrading things. And he said that he, much of his childhood, he went to sleep at night thinking about these things. All this stuff was stuff that was embedded deeply within him. He stayed up late with his parents, and this is all based on what he said. Who knows this if it's true? Because the man is a liar. That <laughs> he stayed up, he stayed up late at night with his his fond memories of, of with his dad is staying up late and watching horror movies with the old man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, who does that except somebody who's going to grow up with at least some dysfunction? It's it's not normal or healthy. And, right, uh, right. And, but, but he anyway and it just fed all that and um so you know by the time he was in junior high high uh, junior high and high school he was everybody was calling him a devil worshiper and he fed on that he enjoyed the attention correct and that's something too i mean when he complains about about the west Coast pd and the uh the rumors and all these things it's like dude you were the source of 90 percent of that that's what you told people to their faces. You know, don't don't act like that and then complain when it comes back and bites you in the ass. A lot of the things 
you know, with Jones and Driver, they he told him, I'm in a cult. We're about to graduate to human sacrifice. Exactly. Well, of course they're going to take that seriously, Damien. <laughs> they're yes, they're not going to say, oh, he's lying. They would be derelict in duty not to do that. And when, when the police. When the police come to you and you you and you and you know this murder's only just a few days ago and it's very strange, very strange uh, dis- disposal of the dispensation of the bodies with the bindings. It has a somewhat ritualistic air to it. They you know you go to this kid who's involved in witchcraft, who's had a year of you know really longer than that, but a year of you know violent acting out, threatening to kill people. It's you know, cutting people's heads off, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And you go to him, and the first thing you say, well, who do you think's to blame for this? And you say, Satanist. And then you complain that the police were looking around going, well, who's the most likely? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, and that's the wanted, thing. He was looking All for these... the <laughs> And, yeah, and then when he got it, it, like I said, it came back and bit him on the ass. But uh, I think I think one of the other problems was that he thought he was smarter than the police. Yes. And he thought, you know, he could say all these things, but he'd still have an out. And that's one of the things that, that I noticed in Paradise Lost 3 when I was watching it. When they showed clips of them, they always said they don't have any evidence. They don't have any evidence. It's like, I, yeah, I that's that what all. guilty people say. They don't put people in jail with no evidence. They do not send people right. to they don't send people to death row for wearing black T-shirts and listening to Metallica. It just right. doesn't happen. The whole that Correct. scenario that it, you know, I wouldn't even bring it up except it gets mouthed, it gets repeated constantly, even now. But, you know, Metallica was one of the biggest bands in the world at, the, at 1993. There was nothing unusual about a kid who was listening to Metallica. Nothing at all. Mm-hmm. There were lots of kids running around with black T-shirts and funny-looking hairstyles in Crittenden County in 1993. In fact, there were of them doing it in 1983, and a lot of the parents of the kids in 1993 were doing it back in 1973. So there's nothing right. weird that or strange about it. What was strange is you got this kid who's running around, who's bragging about killing people, torturing animals. Uh, uh, you know, he's involved in witchcraft. Uh, he likes to he uh, grows his nails out to an inch and a half, uh, files them down to points, and tries to claw out claw out somebody's eyes with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, a romantic a romantic rival. Uh, you know, you got his ex girlfriend Deanna Holcomb who freely admits that she, at the time of the killings, that she was was a black black magician, magician but no longer was involved in that. Uh, I wish I knew what the real story was on the persistent story about the planned uh, ritual sacrifice of their baby, if they ever had one. Uh, and I've tried to contact Deanne on several, several different venues. You know, and I know where she is and who she is and what her name is and all that. Right. She has right. To respond. I, there's many, many things I would like to get cleared up once and for all. 
that might even make Eccles look a little less worse if it turns out, well, that's just a silly rumor that went around. But in lieu of that, all we have is her word for it, and she says that. She says he's a black magician. She's right, a, uh, right. She's one of many people who took polygraph tests who failed on one question. Do you know who did – do you know who committed the killings? And Deanna said no, and then they, the, the polygraph shows deception on that one question. Right. And ask about it. Right. She says, well, no, Damien did it. L.G. Hollingsworth did the same. It happened the same way with L.G. Hollingsworth, who was a close associate with Eccles. I'm not sure they were even really friends, but they certainly hung around together quite a bit. Right. Uh, uh, there was uh, several other people. That Frankie Knight was another one who, that, that did that and who knew him quite well and was a family friend, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And, uh, and, and, and in fact, uh, most of the failed polygraphs, which I know are very controversial, they were not allowed in court. But but you know, Eccles failed his polygraph, Miss Kelly failed his, um, Buddy Lucas failed his, but in the, the sense that it confirmed that uh, Lucas had been telling the truth about his con- uh, confession. Uh, uh, Miss Kelly's statements. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. His statements to. Uh, to Lucas the day after the killings, where he had, he was crying about it with you know lots of other details, right? And said he'd gone with Jason and and, uh, and uh, Damien over to West Memphis and beat up some boys real bad. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop you right there. We're gonna take a little a little quick break, uh, and we'll be back in how long, Michael? Eh, about two, three minutes. Okay, two, three minutes. Great. We'll be back in two or three minutes, y'all. Then check out the guys at Sub-Ohm Vapors. With daily specials on a wide selection of mods and juices, they will surely become your one-stop shop. Ray and the guys at Sub-Ohm Vapors, located at 6929 JFK Boulevard, Suite C in North Rock, Arkansas, 
want to see you. Join them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, but more importantly, visit the store or call 501-392-6487. Sub on Vapors. Vape it like you built it. about Deanna. Now, didn't Dominie also express some concern about the baby she was pregnant with at the time of the murders? When she was in labor, the doctor reported that uh, Dominie was expressing concern about this, that she was mentioning something along the lines of she was fearful for the baby's life, that sort of thing, and not because she thought that because of the childbirth thing, but to, I can't remember exactly what she said. Right. I looked at that lately, real closely. And, as, but, as, I uh, recall, as I recall from the statements about Deanna, it was, if it was a girl, it was going to be sacrificed. Yes. But if it was a boy, was, it was okay. That's right. If it was a girl, it's going to be sacrificed. Uh, and Deanna said that that's when she she broke up with Eccles because of this. Now, she was under tremendous pressure from her parents to break up with the guy for understandable reasons. But uh, she uh, 
she broke up with him over this because she realized that if anybody was going to do this, he was going to be forcing her to do it because he wouldn't be capable of actually doing something like that himself because he was too big a coward. Mm-hmm. And which to some extent fits in with the um, Robin Hood Hills scenario of killing these three boys where Eccles was certainly involved and he was involved in assaulting the boys in all sorts of ways, including physically assaulting them. Of course, it doesn't take right. any great courage for an 18-year-old to beat up an 8-year-old child. Yeah. Uh, takes ex- the exact opposite of that to know if you want to know the truth, but uh, of courage, it's far from that. But uh, he, as far as the you know, the most heinous of the of the actual physical torture and damage done to the boys was apparently done by the seemingly innocuous uh, Jason Baldwin, who took a knife to Stevie Branch's face and uh, emasculated Chris Fry, just about the most horrible thing you can imagine. And and they all stat, you know, they, they were repeatedly assaulted with knives and sticks. Uh, part of the evidence that I think is, and it's physical and it's somewhat anecdotal, but the, the Miss Kelly describes how he weirdly sort of protects Michael Moore from being cut up by Baldwin. Right. Beating the poor kid to death, but, you know, he doesn't want him cutting on him. I, I'm not sure I understand the total distinction, but it's there, and it seems like a real thing. Uh, I think there's a pretty compelling argument that if you were going to pick somebody uh, with a superficial knowledge of the ca- of circumstances, you would pick out Eccles as the one who would be the, like willing to be running around with a knife cutting on people. And there's mm-hmm. <coughs> there's no report from Miss Kelly that he was doing that. Correct. Maybe he was. Maybe he was, and maybe it was his knife that did it all. And maybe Miss Kelly was still scared of. Eccles, I, I don't know, but I, I, there's no evidence to suggest that. And, I uh, I have I have always gotten the impression from Miss Kelly's statements, he could only process so much information, and so right. I I don't think that he could process and retain every action by by Baldwin Eccles himself. Uh, he certainly would not have remembered conversations uh, made by anyone uh, during no. that time, except for the most superficial. I think he, he described the boys as like whipped puppies once they started hitting on them. Yeah, I think, that from, I think, post-conviction I think that's from confession. Statement, but, you know, that's another, actually, an argument for that. If that's where it came from, it, I think it it's an argument that that was a valid statement because it sounds like something he would say about three little boys. Mm-hmm. Eccles, the, the Eccles in his first, you know, he, he basically failed the, the FBI checklist on his first questionnaire. As he said, uh, how do you think, among other things, how do you think the killer would feel about this? And Eccles said, Oh, he'd be happy. And, you know, what do they do about the screaming? Oh, he wanted to hear it. It made him feel good. I mean, that didn't mm-hmm. exactly what he said, but, much it and then he said that the boys were uh they weren't they weren't big they weren't smart and they'd be easy to 
subdue is basically what he said. That's not exactly right. that. He did say they're not smart and they're not uh, they're not big. Right, um, right. So he said a number of other things that were that really just uh, the police are going. You know, this is uh, your answers to this questionnaire really make you sound extremely suspicious. And their suspicions were he was already on the list, but there was a long list of initial possibilities there. And uh, so, you know, uh, and then, you know, they get this statement from the, within a day or so, they get this statement from uh, Darlene Hutchinson, oh, Hollingsworth, sorry, some of the ages, in Hollingsworth, <laughs> out seeing uh, Eccles and Domini on the side of the road that evening about 930, with her, and she had her whole family with her. Right. So, they, they didn't go out and immediately arrest him on that information, but he was at the, you know, he failed the polygraph that day, and he did very mm-hmm. poorly in the police interview that day. Uh, again, showing off Marty was, and and you know, I mean, his attitude expressed in the the mental hospital was he was very intelligent. Everybody else was the sheep, and he was the wolf. He wanted to, he thought he would one day be famous. But very much like Charles Manson or Ted Bundy, mm-hmm. I mean, these are not normal thought processes and ambitions for a 17 or 18 year old boy, no matter how oppositional you might be. <laughs> right, exactly. And, and, and exactly. I think it's fairly normal at that age to be somewhat oppositional. I think it could even be healthy to a point, but he was there was nothing healthy about what he was doing. Right, and, and that uh, and. He wasn't your normal angsty teen. No, and, and I, I mean I this was this was disturbing ninety percent of the time. Right, he had a disturbing habit of of uh, blood drinking, and uh, that was documented on many occasions throughout the records. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's even mentioned in any of the Paradise Lost movies at all. Along with most of the uh, Hollingsworth sighting, I think is briefly alluded to in passing at one point. Correct. If you didn't know what, wouldn't know what it was. Uh, right. The mental records are they don't exist. Right. And, uh, exactly. Now, when you leave all that out, there's there's lots of other evidence pointing to him as well. But you leave all that out, and you start becoming. Start coming to understand that this is a totally distorted picture of what this case is all about. The police had somebody who was giving suspicious answers to questionnaires. They failed a polygraph. They had everybody and his brother was saying, you know, this guy did it. And then he, mm-hmm. he, uh, you know, he fails the polygraph. Then he he shuts up. He won't answer any more questions. Says he says I'll talk to you if you bring my mother to me. They bring in mom. And he goes. He says, "I'm going home. I'm not answering any more questions." And that's it. So you know, that's the last time he operated at all. And uh, so he raised all these suspicions himself. Then they get reports of uh, from uh, people who knew him that uh, William Jones was the first that came came to him and said, uh, "Well, Damien was drunk a couple of weekends after the the killings, and he confessed to me." And they had that on – they didn't go out and arrest him on that basis. William Jones mm-hmm. is really not the greatest informant, but you, you, you deal with what you have. You know? Correct. And, uh, 
uh, and he's another one that got scared off by uh, by Lax eventually. But you know, at the, at the, and then there was uh, Deanna gave some very uh, disturbing information about Damian Eccles and their interview with her. Uh, mm-hmm. Nothing. Dominique, Dominique and her mother did a great job of with a very limited. It shows you if you keep your alibi really simple and don't involve mm-hmm. a lot of people, mm-hmm. it, it'll work. And it may have really right. been her real alibi. But, you know, her story was she went home that evening, went to bed, fell asleep, went to her mother's bed, fell asleep, and her mother was with there with her there until ten o'clock at night or so when she got on the phone with Damien Eccles. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty good out, and it's hard to disprove. Right. Uh, but, you know, her mother, but other than that, her mother and um, Dominique really didn't build a lot of confidence with the, the investigators either with most of their other answers. I mean, Correct. Diane, Tier, her, who's also passed, uh, describes, well, I don't really know that much about Damien being that involved in the occult, and then she she <laughs> – she talks about how she's blending all him, all this book. Out, all, which, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, well, I think that's, you know, that's the other thing that, that always has kind of mystified me. Why are you so set, and this is any of the advocates, of discounting his interest in the occult? If it had nothing to do with the murders, just like if you say someone else did it, why does it matter that the boy's injuries were caused by turtles? Why is it so important to establish that? If you think somebody else killed them, why don't you want it to be that person who inflicted those injuries? Why do you want to say a body face down in the mud had his genitals eaten off by a snapping turtle when he was face down in the mud. Right. His face was smashed down in the mud by somebody's foot. Right. His body was smashed down in the by, by a killer's foot. Yeah. Uh, horrible even to think about. Um, right. Exactly. And and uh, the reason, I, the answer is, is that he makes a better victim if there's also this idea that he's a victim of religious persecution uh-huh. And and then, you know, that he was, uh, you know, Eccles has said, you know, he's variously complained that it was Metallica and blue T-shirts that got him convicted. And then he, right. lately he's been – lately, now that he's come out as a, as a full-scale, uh, long-time, lifelong disciple of Aleister Crowley, which was pretty evident even back then, anybody was paying attention, you know, and now he <laughs> says his love of Crowley – his love of Crowley is what got him convicted, and the truth is, is none of that got him convicted. They had, they had an expert. They did have an expert. Right. Uh, could argue about whether he was an expert or not, but he, I think he was. I think the jury said he was knowledgeable about the occult, and I think he was pretty knowledgeable about the occult. Yeah. But he wasn't. A, Dale Griffiths was not a great witness. He didn't. He didn't make a build a compelling case that this was a, a cult, a cult ritual that was involved right. in the killing. And uh, didn't really put it all together in any any meaningful way. If he, ser- I think he did serve a useful purpose, and that he, if those who, those jurors who were inclined to b- believe the occult angle, could see that Damien Eccles' explanation of 
the utility of using young boys as uh, human ritual sacrifices was almost exactly the same as Dale Griffiths' explanation mm-hmm. of this. Uh, right, which it, right. Which in turn was almost exactly the same as Aleister Crowley's explanation of this. However, they want to spin that, and they spin it as being, well, he didn't really mean that, but you, do, you have to read what, okay, he, he didn't really mean what he wrote here. He meant something else for the initiated. Well, what about the uninitiated like Damien Eccles? You know, he's right. an ignorant, ignorant, he's still half-educated, I'm sure, uh, uh, teenage kid who's living in an Arkansas trailer park. Nothing wrong with Arkansas trailer parks <laughs> necessarily, but it's not a place where there's a lot of PhDs hanging around. And mm-hmm. uh, for the most part. And, uh, you know, he and he suddenly, you know, he's, He's picking up on all these uh, witchcraft ideas from the, here and there and wherever he can find them. And uh, the idea that he's somehow going to religiously follow just exactly what was laid out in the, you know, the rituals of the Golden Dawn and, and uh, 19th century London when it was founded is, is ridiculous. He didn't mm-hmm. do that. There's no way to do that even now, I don't think. Uh, but you can do a rough simulation. But he, he was hanging out with a bunch of rough Rough, often violent kids his own age. Correct. Correct. And I think something that a lot of lay people that look at criminal cases, they want tangible proof of every aspect. And there just isn't this, the motive behind these murders, that is not something that can ever be proven by anything tangible. Because it's all state of mind. Right. Eccles' state of mind, Baldwin's state of mind, Miss Kelly's state of mind. Miss Kelly was an angry, aggressive little punk who targeted younger children. He just got often girls. Gotten in little legal trouble just a month or two before this this uh, uh, killing for, for hitting a. A young, a young girl, she's at least preteen, she may have been eight or nine, I hit her in the head with a brick, if I'm not mistaken. He threw rocks at another little girl who was more like five or six and injured her uh, mm-hmm. sometime before. He was constantly getting into fights. That was his reputation. Yeah. And was it kindergarten he stabbed a kid with a pencil? <clears throat> I think he was in second grade, but he stabbed him in, okay. stabbed him in the I think in the second grade. His parents... Uh, he was. I think he's probably forced to go to a social worker at some point, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, the social worker suggested, you know, intensive counseling to the parents. But you know, J- Jesse no follow through. You know, and there was no follow through. <clears throat> I think his mother, his stepmother, Shelby, probably loved loved him and did the best she knew how to do. I'm going to give her try to be as generous with this as I can be. But she didn't help him in any kind of meaningful way is to get over this problem. She expressed concerns about this. She knew it was a problem, but she didn't do anything about it. Uh, Jesse mm-hmm. Senior was off prison some of the time. The other two, at the time of the murders, with Eccles, number one, he was uh, in the almost exact year anniversary of his round of troubles with his final breakup with uh, Deanna Holman, never discount what anniversaries will do for you, particularly uh, in a, a month as distinctive as May in 
in West Memphis where the weather's actually pretty pleasant most of the time, unlike most of the rest of the year. And, uh, uh, and he, he, uh, his mother and father who had been broken up for years, got back together. And then, uh, it's not clear what actually happened. Thanks to Pam Hutchison and her many stories about this, but there's at least one possibility that his father got angry with his mother the night before the killings, left the house, packed his bags, and went over to his mother's apartment and was gone for a couple of weeks then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then she told the police this initially, but in a very strange way. Well, you know, it was a usual day. Oh, yeah, except my husband left me that evening. Right, <laughs> exactly. My husband left me that but evening. Then- the, 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 I think it was Ridge was just dumbfounded by this. And then she came back months later and said, well, no, it wasn't really then. It was uh, uh, a week later. It was, yeah. it was the ninth, the day that the police came out and, and talked to Eccles again. And you have to think that maybe at that point that maybe there might have been some family uh, tensions going on over uh, Damien's uh, activities. Yeah. If they've got any at all, which is questionable. Uh, Jason Baldwin's mother had had numerous uh, mental breakdowns just that year, had been in mm-hmm. mental hospital several times, uh, with severe mental problems. Uh, she had, uh, just a few weeks before this happened, uh, you know, her, his, her, his stepfather, Terry Grinnell, uh, was in the habit of beating uh, Gail or Angela, whatever she wants to be called, and uh, and occasionally taking that on the boys as well. And Jason decided he'd had enough of it, so he took a baseball bat to the stepdad and drove him out of the house. Right. Gail turns around and lassos this uh, small-time petty criminal named Dink Dent uh, mm-hmm. to uh, – Dennis Dink Dent to to come live in, live with her, and this had gone on for a couple of weeks, and they apparently weren't getting along since, as he put it, they terminated their love that 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 uh, very evening that uh, the the boys were killed. Mm-hmm. She was all, she thought certainly was at work that day. Yeah. The next day, Terry and Pam Hobbs both said that she was over at their house that evening after the news of the the murder of their child came about, they both identified her and they both said unequivocally it was her. She didn't Why? know them. She had no personal link to the to the case at all. That's in any obvious way except her son was one of the killers. Uh huh. She was supposed to be at work. Why was she there? Right. That that has that. always been that has always been something that's kind of made me wonder. And I asked her, I contacted as many people, I contacted as many people as I could find uh, more on the defense side. I didn't, I, I didn't try to go get the attorney's officials versions or I didn't try to go talk. To, I didn't go talk to Mike Allen, for instance, who I do know a little mm-hmm. bit. But no pretty, I don't, you know, I didn't want to get in, seem like I was getting in, I know what the prosecution case is pretty well. He might Correct. be able to give me some information, but I know pretty well what it is if I could get him to talk to me, and I wouldn't blame him if he didn't But uh, about this particular thing. But uh, she, uh, 
you know, she, she, well, I lost my train of thought now. Which is the oh, I, I hate when that happens. <laughs> the train <laughs> leaves. Yeah, no, you were, we were talking about, you talked to Gail Grinnell or Angela. Oh, yeah. Or whatever her name. Used, oh, yeah. She got, she, she got mad and said, I'm not going to have you harass me, and uh, I'm not answering any of your silly questions. And uh, she blocked me so on Facebook, which is how I was trying to communicate with her. So, okay, that was, yeah. That's the end of that. And I was, I was asking direct questions, but I was respectful. I wasn't calling her names or making, making any kind of inappropriate noises. Right. And she just couldn't handle it. And that's right. how she would have acted, and which is why, she, which is why, she was not brought as not that she had an alibi for Jason. Jason doesn't have an alibi. Of all the three, no. he has no alibi. And he and his mother have not been able to come up with a coherent alibi after some how many millions of dollars have been spent on that case, and it's twenty five years later, and they still well, can't come up with what what, did, what are you actually doing? The, then? the impression that I get actually is that in her mind and in his mind, they have solid alibi. She says she has his school records. He was in school that day. Well, murders didn't happen during school hours. Well, that's what Miss Kelly said. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no. Miss <laughs> Kelly said a lot of things, and one of the things he said was it happened at night. So, um, so school records and I saw on Facebook on one of the groups, she said there was some function at school that night, and she has the records that he was there. So I think she'll say whatever she thinks will turn the heat down. Uh, yeah, and uh, understandable. And Baldwin names Don Nam and, and Kenny Watkins and all these people. It's like, sweetie, have you read their statements to the West Memphis PD? Because they don't give you a good alibi, sweetie. <laughs> like Ken Watkins, he was with you know he was with you Eccles and Dominey. Guess what? Eccles and Dominey were invisible because he doesn't mention them once. <laughs> well, he later though. They were invisible. They were all over. They were all over at Jason's house having a great time playing video games. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, absolutely contradicts. Everybody that being over at Bartouche. Everybody that give Domini an alibi, and right. uh, and there's no, I mean, there's uh, Dink Dent says that uh, Jason didn't. He was he was actually a fairly good. He gave a fairly solid statement because he didn't seem to have an agenda. I mean, he was in jail with Hank. <laughs> the mm-hmm. guy was back in Phoenix at the time, but he gave a pretty solid statement and said, you know, uh, Jason didn't come in. It was at least nine, maybe nine thirty. And then his mother used to call at nine thirty, so it was probably around then, you know. Right. And that was that. That's no alibi. It just isn't. Right. Right. And then his little brother Matt says he's there all evening, but little brother Matt is a, would have been a terrible witness. You can tell that just from his statement to the police. He he can't even hold up under fairly gentle police questioning, much less on on a witness stand. Mm-hmm. And. So he would have been a terrible witness. Don Nam is not – I mean, he, he has, he's no alibi. But mm-hmm. Jason still tries out as the Asian kid who saw him at, uh, at uh, right. <laughs> Walmart playing video games. Well, he he didn't see him, and he's, you know, that's – Right, you know, come right. Up with, well, I, 
as I recall, I think it was Don Nam did initially give a good statement for Baldwin, but then he retracted it. Yeah, he did. You know, the problem is, is the statement was he saw Dominique, Damien, and Jason that evening uh, at the video video game parlor, and they all left about six. And he didn't. Uh-huh. You know, he didn't say all them after that. Well, they had time to to walk from there, there over to Robin Hood Hills before the boys got there. They would have right. a fairly good clip, but they could get over there in half an hour or so. From there, it's not that far. It's not close, but it's not. It's about a mile or so. So that wasn't even a good alibi in that sense, right? You know, because uh, they were, yeah, they were, they were heading toward Belvedere Apartments, which was halfway between Walmart and the woods. Right. Yeah. Right. So there's no. Yeah, you know, speaking of apartments, speaking of uh, apartments. Eccles acted at some point. You know, he lied at his his, his testimony. Um, uh, let's see, he, he lies now about you know having never been, never went into West Memphis, didn't know anything about Correct. it, he lived there. Thing. Correct. He lived at the Mayfair Apartments when he was a kid, uh, about the age that it would been seems to be it would have been very likely. Maybe Eccles was too scared to get across that pipe bridge. I'm not sure mm-hmm. to blame him, but anyway. You know, he had to have known about the woods. And then he describes in his testimony, yeah, I actually walk through there two or three times a week to that very neighborhood. And there's only one way to get through that neighborhood over to where he's going, which is to go across that pipe bridge and through some of the woods to go out by the Blue Beacon and go on. There's no other way to Mm -hmm. really do that. Correct. And so he had to be familiar with that. Right. And then, you know, then on Larry King, he says Marion and West Memphis are 10 miles apart. But no, he, what he says, he's, they're, Which they're, is, they're, they're, 10, <laughs> they're 10 or 15 miles, within 10 or 15 miles of each other. Well, it's true. They are within 10 or 15 miles of each other. In fact, they're more like within a mile of each other. <laughs> Correct. Correct. <laughs> So you can stand in the you can stand in the Walmart parking lot and see Marion. Yes. When you're standing in the Walmart parking lot in West Memphis, you are looking into Marion. Well, actually, you know what the the kids uh, in that uh, that that live around that that new Walmart that whole mm-hmm. area over there, they go to what Marion schools. Mm-hmm. It's it's a historical anomaly. They're in the West Memphis city limits, but they go to Marion schools because that's how the right. school districts divvied up 60 Correct. years ago or what, and they've never changed right. that. So that's how close they are to each other. And mm-hmm. it's their sister cities in many, many ways. So they're, they are very different in style and character. As you know, you live there. Right. <laughs> Correct. Correct. Although I lived in a kind of a little bit of a hood when I lived in Marion. You know, that, I mean, there were you know, good working class people, and then there were some people that you know, like three or four guys and four or five girls and nine or ten kids in yeah. a little house. You you know, are you familiar with the dollhouses? Yes. Off of Mount City Road? I, say that you had I lived on Cottonwood them. Cove. Oh, I, I got a lot of people mad at me one year because they ran a – this is way off the topic, but there was a Christmas lighting contest 
and somebody had lit up their little dollhouse wonderfully, and we gave them the prize, and everybody got mad about it. How <laughs> dare <laughs> <laughs> you give somebody from the dollhouse a prize for yeah. that <laughs> But, yeah, I actually covered some crime situations over there with hostage taking and some – that was turned out to be nothing, but, you know, there was some crime things that went on over there that I did a few things with. Oh, okay. That None of that happened when I lived there. Well, it got worse actually. <laughs> oh, oh, I I, for, I didn't realize I was a stabilizing influence in the in the dollhouses. Oh my! <laughs> it didn't look anywhere near as bad as most of uh, like a big chunk of West Memphis, but that's saying a lot too. Mm-hmm. That's right, pretty bad. Right. I mean, you know, like uh, I said, there were there were some good hardworking people, uh, but there it, there were some odd, strange things. Yes, and you know so. that's true. With that's true with a lot of the. I, I met some people that I knew some people in the Lake Shore and some of these other trailer parks over there, uh, which are in a weird spot where they're really not married and they're really not West Memphis or out in the county. Mm-hmm. Nobody really take them in. There's mm-hmm. not much of a tax there, among other things. But uh, there's there's some really quite decent people who live there, and. Uh, you know, they're just trying to do the best they can, and they just don't have resources. So, right. You no, know, not not everybody there is a satanic worshiper or whatever. But I will say, right. I've been told, and I understand that there is there's a lot of that sort of activity there because there are a lot of people who have you know traveled with the circus and done a lot of transient type work, and they're just mm-hmm. really sketchers. And if you look at the court the the, the court records in this case, it's you know one ball after another pops up. Correct. Uh, with, Correct. With James A. Martin at the top of the list, he's he's <clears throat> the absolute worst. He was a convicted child killer who gave a pretty damning uh, description of the boys being tied up with shoelaces and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. It really made it could have been a potential suspect. I don't think he had a really good alibi, but he did have one. But there wasn't much else connecting him there, and he did have People I think, seem to be going to work, so you know. It's, yeah, I did. I seem to recall he he had to be at work at a time that you know, and it, he was working at a flash market over in Marion. Yes. yes. And uh, I just don't think they could they could find that he had time to commit the crime and then get to work and be on time. Right, which which begs the question: How anybody could think that that Mark Byers could have possibly possibly have had time to be involved in uh, this this killing? Right. As a, considering he had a pretty darn good alibi for the whole night, <clears throat> and for the little bit of it that he wasn't that was not accounted for, it wasn't enough time to clean up, much less do all the other stuff that he he'd done. He went Correct. home, changed clothes, came back. Correct. Amount of time. And, and you know, this, this is this is with the fact that this is with the quote theory that the woods were not the crime scene, that the crime scene was somewhere else. And so he would have had to transport the bodies into the woods, into the ditch. And it's the same with Terry Hobbs. Yeah, it's, it's because he, they didn't really question him. Closely about this until mm-hmm. uh, what 2000, 
seven. Nine. Two thousand seven. No, no, it was two thousand seven. Yeah. Yeah, two thousand seven. <clears throat> It'd been such a long time, you know, his memory, and people say, oh, how could you forget the details of that evening? Number one, it was very stressful. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Two, you know, you start asking people, well, what did you have for breakfast the day your first child was born? You might not remember that 17, 18 years later, you know, Correct. even though that might be the most important day in your whole life. You may not Correct. remember all the details. You remember the big details. Everything else kind of fades away unless you have some reason to remember um, and he didn't you accept – he wasn't trying to formulate an alibi then. If he was the mass, criminal mastermind that people act like he is, he would, he, would, he would have had an alibi prepared a long time ago. He didn't have mm-hmm. one because he didn't need one. He was innocent. Right. And, right. and uh, Jacoby was even more blindsided uh-huh. by all this because it was the last, furthest thing from his mind that, that he or Terry Hobbs would ever be implicated in this. So, right. Uh, but you know, and, even if you look, if even if you look at what what evidence is available, and it's pretty clear just on base statements at the time, mm-hmm. Hobbs was around looking for his son quite a bit of the time. Uh, officer places him at his house at eight thirty. Mark Byers, I mean, yeah, Mark Byers places him uh, <coughs> uh, up uh, up at his house or or the Moore's house around eight or so, and right. Uh, Jacoby or Jacoby or however he pronounces his name. Anyway, he uh, he you know he says you know he was out with Hobbs a number of times out riding around that evening, and I don't think mm-hmm. that man's a liar. I just don't. No, no. So, um, Tom well, Hobbs I, is either memory's not great at this point. And and this is another it's another example of the of the blatant double standard. Eccles could not remember his alibi within a day, two days, a week, a month. But that's okay. Because he's a yes. teenager. Virtually but Hobbs, they talk, they t- the time 14 she- years later, <laughs> he's supposed to remember it, every detail, and be, it, it has to be corroborated by Six forms of documentation, right? Uh, that you know, I mean, come on, have one standard if you're going to criticize the case against the three killers, because there's not enough corroboration for your case of information. Then why are you accusing someone based on an inconclusive mitochondrial DNA? on piece of evidence and statements from people who knew what they're talking about at the time Steve was murdered, but couldn't get off their asses and go talk to the West Memphis police department because none of the information reported by Pam Hicks, the Moyers, the Clarks, the Ballards, none of that information was events that occurred weeks, months, days, years after the murders all those things are that are things that occurred the day of or before the murders, such as the alleged right. abuse of Steve. And they didn't remember any of that until the uh, the little little DNA evidence and the hair showed up, and mm-hmm. all of a sudden it was correct. Oh, well, the the Moyer Clark Ballard excuse for not reporting what they say they saw is that well we didn't know what Terry Hobbs told the police. 
And the police never came to us. And I don't know if you've been listening to that other podcast, but, you know, basically excoriating the West Memphis Police Department for, for not canvassing a neighborhood a mile away from where the boys were found and seen prior to being murdered. Right. When they had no, I think they had one off-the-wall weird statement from somebody that lived in that neighborhood. Yeah, they did. But nobody else in that neighborhood said anything about seeing the boys. And this was important information. If you did see the boys at 630, you should have called West Memphis Police Department and said, we saw the boys here at 630. And then they would have had, you know, a reason to use the resources and go canvas that neighborhood. Right. And on top of that, it, it directly contradicts a lot of other statements from witnesses. Correct. Who saw oh, them, you it, know, on the, it's other, contra- on the other it's, re- it's totally refuted by Dana Moore and Don Moore. But right. And and, 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 other wit- and other witnesses who saw three boys going, and maybe mm-hmm. it wasn't those three boys, but I don't know who else it would have been. But um, those three boys, and, you know, it, it, there's no way they could have gotten from. Um, Macaulay Circle all the way down there up to to uh, Robin Hood Hills in five or ten minutes. Right. Even on. Well, no, I mean it would have had to be. It would have had to be within a minute or two. Right. Well, there's even if they on, had the, on uh, some of the sightings. Yes. Yes. Because the, the timing was very close on it. You're you're absolutely right. But even if you give some leeway there, there's still no way they could, it could have happened. Right. And also the the Ballard Clark Moyer witnesses saw Chris no saw Steve on a bike and Michael and Chris walking. Well, where is Chris? Where's Michael's bike? Because Michael was on a bike. Why would Mike be walking? Michael correct exactly. Where where would his bicycle be? Because he had that with him, and that's what he was seen doing on the other side of the neighborhood. And uh, and. and they just sort of magically spot Terry Hobbs out there at that particular time in, in conjunction with chasing after or right. following after the place, uh, well, making him look bad, even though that in I'm, itself still be incriminating. But, you know, it's still, I am I mean, going to put the I am going to put this out there. I think that Berlinger and Sanofsky and Amy Berg paid people a lot of money for their statements in Paradise Lost and West of Memphis. Because the declarations of Moyer Clark Ballard witnesses signed do not have some of the detail that they give on these movies. For example, the the declarations don't say anything about seeing Terry actually in control of the boy. I mean, Terry saying he didn't see him if he saw him and they ignored him and kept going to the other side of the neighborhood, he's not he's not under control of them. He never no had control Don, of them. No more than Don. He Moore, saw Don him. After her Correct. Brother, right. Exactly. He he saw them and they kept going. Um. Right. So yeah, it's they they should have see something, say something. The police aren't psychic. They don't know what you might know. 
And if you think at the time that you know something, you have to let them know because they may not canvass your neighborhood or they may canvass at a time when you're not home and the wind might blow their card off your door. There's things in that West West of Memphis movie that to me are that are just total. Well, I mean, consider the source. Eccles is one of the producers, and it's Peter Jackson. <laughs> but the the uh, the and what's what's the other kid's name? I mean, these are two drug yeah. drug two kids with drug Correct. problems. Home Eric Arkansas, who are telling a, a really stupid story that wouldn't pass scrutiny, like the first round of police interrogations, must much less mm-hmm. go in the court. Anybody about Correct. the Hobbs family well, that somebody them that somebody else told that you know I mean it's it's like Correct. firsthand information and uh, and that's and the other- this is something this is something that a lot of people don't realize had uh, had those hearings gone forward neither of those witnesses would have been able to testify under any stretch of the imagination there is no argument Dennis Reardon could have made that would have gotten no. either one of those witnesses on the stand because it was. Mike Jr. told us that Terry confessed to Mike Sr. Or Mike Jr. told us Mike Sr. told him Terry confessed. Exactly. That's like quadruple hearsay. At one point, at one point, both those guys and the two convicted rapists who came up with the uh, uh, uh-huh. the, uh, the uh, Terry Hobbs scenario, they were all mm-hmm. in the Arkansas prisons at one point. That was Baldwin. Miss Baldwin. Don't get to pick, you know, your sources, but you've got to do better than convicted rapist. It just got, it's got to be better than that. Correct, correct. And well, that was other, that was something. One, uh, I'm I'm gonna I, I need to defame Ken Swindle for a minute. Okay, Buddy Lucas, <laughs> you can call him and tell him this, uh, and give him my address. Uh, Buddy Lucas and David Jacoby were both alive. And available. There's no way your two little rapists would have ever been able to testify in any court proceeding either. And he had Jacoby and Lucas at that hearing, but he never put either one of them on a stand. Yeah. And that's the only way he would have gotten any of that crap into court. Because their hearsay statements from Buddy who's still alive are completely, totally not going to happen. No. The other thing... The other, so, he was just doing things. it to try and get attention. Yes. Oh yeah. Uh, he wants to get on the bandwagon. It, it was a disinformation camp, yet another disinformation campaign, and it kept uh, the Hicks family happy. So, you know, the sisters and so right. forth. Right. Like, they reveled in, you know, sticking it to Terry once again. The uh, the other thing in West West of Memphis movie that I thought was truly beyond the pale was Jennifer Bearding coming out and reading part of a very poorly worded police report. And if you read mm-hmm. just excerpt that she read without reading the whole thing and reading her own statements because all it is is a report. It's I think it's Brian Ridge's report and uh, uh, about what she said. And you have the transcribed statement of what she actually said. You will see that she, that in the movie and even in the report, it's clear. It's just not as clear as it could be. 
that she, if you re- read the little excerpt, it sounds like she told them that she was talking to Damien uh, uh, from all, all that evening. Well, that's not what she said. That's not what the police re- poorly worded police report really says. It's just mm-hmm. poorly phrased. And if you look at her own statement, she didn't talk to, to Eccles any time between 4.30 till nine, at least 9.20 at night and probably later. Correct. Uh, at, Correct. Uh, but 9.20 at least. And that she tried to call the house at 8. He wasn't there. She's told, oh, he's, you know, he's out with Jason somewhere. Correct. <laughs> you know. Exactly. And there's, and, and you know, and, if you're going to bring Jason, if you're going to bring Jennifer Ball, I mean, Jennifer um, Bearden into a movie and talk to her, ask her about that. Right. Correct. And, you know, that's, uh, she was the source of one of the myths created by those folks out in California. Um, Basically, the myth was that Damien subpoenaed her to testify as his alibi, but her mother would not let her testify. And so poor Damien, poor little Damien was disadvantaged because her mean mama wouldn't let her go to court in Jonesboro and testify. I had reached out to her, and I think this is kind of before she got her. A friend of mine had reached out to her before she kind of got on the, their innocent bandwagon. And she said, I was sitting out in the hall at the courthouse in Jonesboro, and nobody ever called me. What would she have testified to? And, if, you know, Eccles claims he was talking to four girls that evening. Heather Quiet. You know? Heather Quiet. Heather, yeah. Yeah. They, well, list. they get they get this stuck in their head that she was an absolute alibi, but she hurt them when she talked about talking to him and Baldwin at Baldwin's trailer when they're supposed to be cutting Hubert Bartusha's lawn, and yeah. them saying, we got to get off the phone, we're going somewhere. And then, yeah. of course, Grandma's saying, he ain't home, he's out with, with Jason. Right. I mean, you know, they... Well, Harley George says she didn't talk to him that evening. Heather mm-hmm. Clyde gave, gave a bunch of contradictory statements, including one much later that claimed she had a late night chat, three way chat with Jason and Damien, you know, at midnight or so that evening. Which mm-hmm. I, I don't know what the point of that was. She's another one I contacted who I got a very angry response from her, but no coherent answers back. And I don't blame her. Right. They could not be. Uh, reconcile with reality uh, There were too many mutual Statements from her uh, Dominique you know There's a good chance she actually talked to, to they, She and Damien actually talked to 10, 10 That night but that's not an alibi for Damien And to, for him to act like he was Talking to four girls all evening He, he wasn't Correct uh, And he, he, is, he never provided these phone call alibis To the police uh, they didn't no. find out, as I recall, they didn't find about the, all the girls until sometime in September. By that time, Bell South no longer had the local usage data between Southwestern Bell and, and Bell South or South Central Bell. That's, that's very interesting because there have been – For the phone calls. Questions about the phone records, and the jury had actually asked what, how, where are the phone records, and it turns out they weren't available well. Like they're not kept for, right? So um, back you know, in the nineties, 
local usage data was hit or miss. But, you know, the other thing, Ron Lapp, particularly in Arkansas, he knew how to subpoena phone. I, I promise you that man knew how to subpoena phone records. So uh, that was another problem is that the defense takes this we'll sit back and wait approach and doesn't go out and proactively do something, although, you know, getting the phone records would have only hurt you, not helped you. So they don't bother to try and get them. And then they, you know, make it the fault of the Westminster PD for not going after something they didn't know about until two months after the arrest. And local usage, as I recall, you had to ask for it within weeks. Because if you didn't, it was gone. We could talk about the problems with the Miskelly's uh, alibis, but we don't. We don't have another two hours to talk. No, you know, that, that's a total mess. It's a total mess. I know. I, my, we I, we even. I mean, there are so many myths. I think we need to do. It's hard. <laughs> <laughs> we maybe sometime in the future, we can do our own little uh, podcast series where we will literally go through this case. Over about three months, that two hours every week. By the way, I wanted to tell you that I you mentioned I had originally put out basically a two volume set on this case. Correct. Well, I Correct. spent about a year boiling those two things down into uh, from uh, one hundred ninety thousand words to eighty thousand words, boiling those two things down into one volume, and it's mm-hmm. now available called The Case Against, very simple title, self-explanatory, The Case Against the West Memphis Three Killers. It's available, it's available on Amazon, on Kindle. Oh, great. And it's, it is significantly cheaper than those two volumes, which are – I had to price them that high because uh, the production cost, but it was – Right. They were kind of – uh, they, well, they were well worth it. As I, as I said, I'm, I'm almost finished uh, Blood on Black. I had to make myself stop reading at one o'clock in the morning, and I was late wow. to work this morning. <laughs> and I blame you. Um, but uh, and I must have downloaded those right before you came out with the single volume. Yes. But it's it's well worth. It's it's not. It's not an exorbitant price, and it's well worth it because there's a wealth of information. The, the Kindle versions are actually fairly inexpensive. Uh, it's the print. Okay, yeah. Uh, right. You know, if, if you really want a more complete version, and it's not I, – I didn't pad it. It's just that, you know, it, I just had to cut, cut, cut to get it down to, you know, 100 to 80, 80,000 words. But in, And that contains, the I would say, the spine of the, the story, but the two volumes really flesh the whole thing out. And I don't want to sound like I'm trying to sell a bunch of books on here because, frankly, this, you know, uh, books that uh, tout the guilt of killers is probably aren't going to sell unless, right. it's Ted, unless it's got Ted Bundy or Charles Manson in the title. But, uh, right. you know. But that's, you know, but I think it's still, the information is out there. And there are people, I think that people believe in, the people who believe in guilt and the people who are undecided just aren't as vocal as right. those who believe in innocence. But that is starting to change. 
because I think there are a lot of people now who see the injustice of the guilty being freed based on propaganda, that they are starting to want to have a voice as well and at least offer the counterpoint. Yeah, I had people trying to get me fired from the West Memphis Evening Times because I was writing – doing some coverage there at that time, well, long before the books came out, that was not, uh, th- th- and that it was not, it was not in the, uh, Hey, they're guilty beyond all doubt, but it just, it, it taken the idea that these guys were convicted killers until they prove otherwise, then we're going to treat them as such. And Correct. it infuriated people and they were contacting the publisher demanding I be fired. He didn't do that, but you know, uh, I, I recognize that the right person and, Calling calling or enough people doing that would have really created some problems, and I've been uh, uh, and this is true with everybody who does the the non side of this as they call it. You end up yeah. being abused horribly by people and accused of all sorts of things. Correct. And you know, including being and um, where were you where were you on May fifth, nineteen ninety three? I don't know. Correct. <laughs> I'm pretty sure and I'm working at the appeal, but I couldn't I say can, for sure. I'm going to put it out there. I respect their opinions, and I'm not going to go finding out where they work. First of all, I could care the hell less, and then contact their employer and try to get them fired. That is such a horrible, horrible thing because that is trying to uh, suppress someone else having their right to their own opinion and to their own expression of that opinion. And we all deserve that right. And I don't know why in the last 15, 20 years, suddenly, if you don't agree with me, I am going to not only shut you up, I am going to ruin you. I am going to embarrass you. I am going to make sure you lose your job. That, those are the actions of a coward. I mean, I've never, I've never inquired I've never inquired into what other people do as much as I disagree with them and as horrible and ugly they are to me. I don't care. What you think of me has absolutely nothing to do with my life. I let you express your opinion, have the respect to let me express mine, but that's lost. And as as you've seen on Facebook, you can't debate anymore because when you make a point, they get ugly and call you names. See, that's how I know I've all, I always know I've won. Is when they're, you know, calling me everything but a child of God, as one of my coworkers likes to say. I know I won. I made a point. And you know, it's like somebody's wrong on the internet. Oh my God. It's actually kind of a good feeling. The the best they can do is, you know, you know, you freaking idiot is is their, you know, their correct, correct maximum leverage against you. I mean, and that's a nice way of putting what they said. But you know, it's uh, you know, who cares? I mean, who that's going to hurt me? Get real, right? And like I said, I I respect their opinions, and. The, I think the problem that they have is that I recognize that every one of their opinions is based on information that is not true. 
Jesse Miss Kelly was not questioned for 12 hours by any stretch of any imagination. And it no. doesn't take a whole lot to see if he was picked up at 10 and his first confession started at 2.44 and ended at 3.18 and the clarification statements taken around 5, 5.15 lasted about 15 minutes, you can't make that 12 hours. No. For him to have been questioned for 12 hours, he would have been, had, to pick up at, had to been picked up at 2 o'clock in the morning. And a lot of that was dead time, too, or they were doing paperwork. Correct, or they were going and looking for his daddy to sign the polygraph. Right. Because and, the law and, says if you're a minor, they can't give you a polygraph. Right, and if they were so But the law they says if you're, if you're eligible to be charged as an adult, they can treat you like an adult, and I have no problem with that. Right. I believe well, that that is how it should be. Yep. If you're going to make that kind of decision and commit that yeah. kind of crime, then you should not have the benefit of being in the juvenile justice system no, because that is it, that is not going to help you. No. You're beyond the it. Problem, the only problem I have with that is their selective enforcement even of that, but, you know, it's it's somewhat understandable. It's, yes, I, I know. I know. In New Orleans, we have a big we, – we have had for many years a big old catch-and-release program. NOPD catches them, and uh, Orleans Parish Criminal Court re- releases them. And people that should not be out on bail get out on bail. Uh, I know. Look, I just moved. I don't live in Memphis anymore, but I just moved from there. <laughs> and it's, it's it's not much different there, I'm afraid. Uh, right. Except, I think anywhere, not- though, but I think in West Memphis, as far as the juvenile justice system, from what I've read in your book and in the statements and the court documents, the juvenile justice system over there was overwhelmed. Oh, I think that's true. And uh, so it was very hard to supervise all those people. And then you had people like Eccles who were demanding attention every time you yeah. turned around. I mean, yeah, they were drinking. Drinking another kid's blood every time you turn around. (laughs) It was, you know, Steve Jones and Jerry Driver were not obsessed. I bet Damien was calling him. Hey, got some information for you. You know, know he did. He was an attention seeker, and anybody who can't see that—that is actually how they described him as a source that they were using for information about local occult and and, and criminal. Correct. Because he was privy to all this information, and he loved sharing it because it made him feel that it loved, he loved getting the attention, and it gave him a false sense of power. That's what it's mm-hmm. all about. It's, it's that way now. He's the same way now as he was then, except he's older. And he's a victim. He's a victim, and so is Jason. Yeah. Professional yeah. victims. And somebody, oh. you know, there there are ways that. If this case, if they really want the attention to go away, then they can negative attention to them to go away. All they have to do is just stop seeking it, and guess what? It will go away sooner or later. I, Probably I, I don't think that that because you know in the what is it almost six years, almost six and a half years since the Alfred pleas, 
every time they kind of start to fade from the media, they appear again with something else. Yeah. That other podcast claims to have a big, big break in the case. And attorneys are involved, and now he can't talk about it anymore. <laughs> I know. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, what kind of break could there possibly be? The case is 25 years old. They pled they guilty. Spent, well, they spent this is a... He's going to crowdsource them out. He's going to crowdsource them to an exoneration. One of the... One of the problems that I, yeah, well, that I ha- I find one of the big problems of crowdsourcing is there's not a lot of corroboration for any of the information that you develop. And in no. this case, anything that was developed that was helpful is beyond reproach, doesn't need to be corroborated. And he, this person went so far as to literally put words into Chris, Michael, and Steve's mouths and claim conversations occurred that there's absolutely zero evidence that they could have ever possibly He, he gave the impression they were fleeing somebody as they were going into the woods. It Correct. Is, Correct. It inexcusable. It's disgusting. He is a piece of, you know what, just for doing that yes. one thing, he did nothing else. It's as bad, it's almost as bad as the Paradise Lost people showing their poor little bodies on the creek banks at the shot back first of that movie, which is so, it's just awful. I I, I can't really describe it. I mean, my gorge rises thinking about it. Yeah, and I'm, 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 I'm a paralegal, and I've worked in civil, you know, plaintiff's firms. So I've seen some pretty – and I've always had an interest in true crime. So, like, I, I bought Helter Skelter at the age of 12. Mm-hmm. And there are some pretty gory pictures in that one. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something I can kind of detach myself. It breaks my heart, but I can de- detach myself and look and see what information I can glean. I know. But, you and know, I, I... – yeah, Concentrate on that. But the losses, I mean, I, as I, I said on the show that we did on another uh, incarnation of this podcast or another podcast, um, you know, this destroyed Todd and Dana Moore, Don Moore, John Mark Byers, Melissa Byers, Ryan Clark, uh, Pam Terry and Amanda Hobbs and you know probably Brian Ridge, Mike Allen, Gary Gitchell. I don't think any of them will ever get over the things that they saw and the things that they heard and what was done. No. Some have some have gotten some have really worked at just moving on as best they can and yeah. some have just not been they have not been able to do it. And uh, I'm not going to mention the obvious ones who can't do it because they're not doing it, and it's a very sad case. Melissa Byers right. was a truly tragic case, and uh, it's hard not to feel sorry for her, even on the first viewing of that movie, and you don't know what happened to her when you consider right. how much pain that woman's 
was wearing on her face. Correct. She had plenty of she had a buku personal problems and drug problems, et cetera, et cetera. But she might have been able to pull out of that, but she couldn't pull out of what she got into, what she was pulled into with this. It's very sad. Right. Right. And, uh, you know, like I, I said, I mean, it's destroyed, you know, Todd and Dana. They've gone on as best they can, but they're not who they would have been. Well, had none of this ever happened to them. No. Uh, no. I, I think that's absolutely true. And, uh, I, and I, think uh, it's, I think it's bothered Steve Branch an awful lot. I I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it has. He's 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 been so he's so quiet. I I would like to meet and talk to him because he's uh, he's the only one I hadn't ever met. I met Pam and Terry. I met John uh, Byers. I didn't get to meet Melissa either. And then I met Todd and Dana. And I would love to meet and talk to him. I've had communication with um, brief communications with 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 Steve when it really really didn't amount to much of anything except he was calling about a story and he just you know, he wanted to say thank you for writing that it's about what it came down to as I recall. And uh right. and thank you. And you know, I said, Well thank you. Uh, mm-hmm. but uh you know, uh they uh it's a sad case and uh I I again I think I will remind people that if you really want to remember Michael Moore, Stevie Branch, Christopher Byers. Uh, find that wish list uh, with Amazon or Weaver Elementary School and get them something nice. You know, uh, uh, those kids deserve it. The kids that are alive deserve it, and the kids that are yeah. with us. Definitely. And in fact, um, If you have a link to it, if you want to PM me with it, I can share it on some of my pages. Uh, I'm I'm in several groups on on book, and you know we'll share it on the podcast page as well. Yeah, I have a I have a uh, a Facebook page, and I have been that active on it because I've been busy working on a book and doing this and that. But uh, called the Case Against the West Memphis Three Killers, which is the title of the book. And I've got the link on there for anybody who wants to look on that. Uh, okay. And I know there are other places, that, uh, advocacy boards on both sides of this that are have that posted. Because it's something that really okay. – if anything's bipartisan in this, that should be, and I think it has been. Correct. But I will, Correct. I will, send, you a, I will send you a link to it, okay? Great. Thank you so much. And uh... – it's ten fourteen, so we're fourteen minutes over our regular yeah. time. Uh, which, well, that's the sign. You know, we're we're convinced that is the sign of a great interview, and a great oh, guest, good. and a great show. It's because the time just flies by, and all of a sudden, we're now in the archive portion. So people who are listening live will get some extra uh, material tomorrow. When they re-listen on the archive. Okay. So, uh, but thank you so much for for joining us tonight. Anytime, Lisa. I enjoy talking with you about this. Uh, it, you know, I would love to hear from more callers, but we have found plenty to talk about. So, I'm very Correct. happy with how this. Thank you so much. 
Thank you, and you have a great rest of your night. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. All right, Michael. That was amazing. That two hours flew by crying out loud. I know. I know. I looked at the clock. I'm like, 10 to 15. Oh, he he is awesome. Absolutely. I think that's a I think that's a wonderful idea to do this in segments at a later date. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so. absolutely a wonderful idea and I can't wait till we, you know, get that all worked out and started, but we are in well, uh we are in archive time, so I guess we'll go ahead and finish it out pretty quick. Do you have anything else for this week, Lisa? Uh, no, that is pretty much it again. I want to thank Gary Meese and Mike for call uh for calling in. Um I hope you listen tomorrow because I think the this uh, the live play cuts off at 10, right? Absolutely, absolutely. We're in archive okay. time now. So hopefully Mike will listen to the archive version. Thank you so much for calling. It was great talking to you. Um, and again, this was just a great show. Uh, I want to thank everybody for listening Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and you want to know more, you can find us on Facebook or at our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. We hope you'll join us next week for Episode 8, State of Texas versus Larry Swearingen. In December of 1998, college student Melissa Trotter disappeared from the campus of her school in Montgomery County, Texas. Several witnesses saw her with Swearingen. In early January of 1999, Melissa's body was found in a remote area in the Sam Houston National Forest near Conroe, Texas. Michael and I are going to be discussing the evidence against Swearingen, including a discussion of some events that occurred in late 2017. So in spite of the conviction, this case, like the West Memphis Three, is still going on. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and have a great rest of your week, and we'll see you next week. Turn out the lights. The party's over. They say that all good things must end. Call it a night.